I really do think this is the year. Yeah, this is it. The stars are aligned. Same with the planets. The wait's over. Time's at hand. You can feel it. No doubt about Write it. Write it down. It's written. It is going to happen. Definitely. The Mariners are going to put it all together. It's a big year division title. American League pennant. No doubt about it. Then it is World Series time for the Mariners. They win in six, maybe five. I think they sweep the series. You do? I do. You really do? I do. Great expectations will not be presented at this time. So we may bring you the following special podcast. It's almost live. Still alive. It's alive! A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bulldogs, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and Methodists. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. This is just a real nice surprise. Still alive. Just a real nice surprise. Perhaps one of the reasons Almost Live found a place on TV for so many years was because at its core it was distinctly a local show. The jokes were almost entirely focused on Puget Sound towns, neighborhoods, places. None of those places was a more frequent target than a suburb called Kent. And no member of the Almost Live writing and performing group was more informed about that place than Bob Nelson, the only one of us with an actual Kent pedigree. Now, to be clear, this is not the Bob Nelson who's a retired NFL linebacker, nor is it the one who's a stand-up comedian. That Bob Nelson used to use profanity in his act, but now works clean. And it's not the Bob Nelson who's a public accountant in Tigard, Oregon. That Bob Nelson, by the way, is certified and sometimes uses profanity. No, this is the Bob Nelson from Kent, the rugged East Hills. He grew up there, went to school there. He's Kent's native son, legally. I've seen the papers down at the courthouse. Well, let's jump ahead to the day that Bob Nelson wrote a bunch of sketches and then trotted them over to King TV, even though he figured nothing would happen. Well, sure enough, nothing did at first. But then in the summer of 89, he got a call from Almost Live's producer, Bill Stainton, impressed with Bob's scripts. And, like the computer hackers always say in the movies, he was in. In the next 10 years, Bob never left the show, except for a while to write for The Magic Hour, a talk show that Magic Johnson was the host of. Yep, Magic Johnson had a talk show. But before long, Bob came back home and he stayed with Almost Live until it ended in 1999. But the writing career of Bob Nelson was not in an end, not even close. There were more TV shows and some video projects, and along the way, he fashioned an original screenplay that became a major motion picture in 2013. It was called Nebraska, and it brought the first-time screenwriter Academy Award and Golden Globe nominations. Now, as you would guess, a lot more has followed, including writing and directing the 2016 film, The Confirmation. It's a good one. Turn the subtitles off and watch it, as well as anything that has the name Bob Nelson on it. Just so long as it's that Bob Nelson. I talked to him via Zoom from the Seattle area home he shares with his wife, Valerie. They live on an island. It has electricity with okay internet. Bob Nelson, as I live and breathe, 
thank you for being on this podcast thing. Well, sure. You you seem to know what you're doing. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be just deceiving. Yeah. Uh, look, here's the deal. And I know you've heard this a million times, but huh? I know you, you believe it too. What happened to you doesn't happen in real life. It's the stuff of fairy tales. It's you it's you that you had this script that you had written and I don't know when you wrote it. All, all you do is write and work. Your work ethic is amazing to me. I, I don't have it myself, uh-huh. but you put a script together that was sort of a, <clears throat> a certain kind of a Romana clef, I guess, in a way based mm-hmm. at least on some real things that happened in your life. Yes. And, uh, and it turned into a movie that was Oscar nominated and it was huge, and it was called Nebraska. And it still is called Nebraska, as far as yeah. I know. so you told the sheriff that you were walking to Nebraska. That's right. To get my million dollars. This is Woody Grant. We are now authorized to pay one million dollars to Woodrow T. Grant of Billings, Montana. This is his son. You didn't win anything. It's a complete scam. So you got to stop this, okay? I'm running out of time. This is his wife. I never knew the son of a bitch even wanted to be a millionaire. He should have thought about that years ago and worked for it. How much longer is he going to be around? What's the harm in letting him have his little fantasy for just a couple more days? Woody didn't win anything. You're a damn liar. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. Come on. Have a beer with your old man. Be somebody. Uh, Bruce yeah. Dern was the star of it and some other yeah. great actors in there. Will Forte. Yeah. Will Forte, yeah. So yeah. tell us the story. Huh. I'm not, I shouldn't be telling you how, what mm-hmm. happened to you. You should be telling us what happened to you. But this was after Almost Live. Yes. The show had ended uh, abruptly in 1999. It's been 21 years ago yep. already. Yeah. And, uh, and so then Bob Nelson like everybody else is thrown up on the beach and what am I going to do with the rest mm-hmm. of my life and how am I going to make a living? That's take, right. Take it from uh, there. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, after almost live John Keister and I did a show at Cairo called John report with Bob. lasted a, a little over a year and then i really was, was uh, uh beached uh because let's see how old was i was i in about 40 45 i was gonna it, say 70 but okay. yeah it felt like that and that's kind of an old age to be trying to uh tackle hollywood but uh yeah my wife and i decided well, might as well go for it. Uh, if you remember, Jim Sharp from Almost Live was down there producing comedy. And he, even before I left Almost Live, he had me come down there for a while and work on the Magic Johnson talk show. Yeah, tell me, tell us about that for a minute. <laughs> a lot of people might have missed it because it was so brief, but you were hired as yes. a writer on yeah. the basketball player. Magic Johnson had yes. a talk show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Jim said, well, come down for a while, take a break from Almost Live if you can, and come down, and if you like it, you can stay, and if you don't, um, you can go back home. So, so what, year was, uh, what, what year would this have been, Bob? That was uh, 1998. Uh, 1998? Yes, yeah, so that, that would have been at 42, 
And uh, yeah, so, so I think, well, when almost live ends, I'm going to be stranded in my 40s with no no skills. Uh, and uh, then what's to become of me? So uh, I said, yeah, I might as well try and do that. From Los Angeles, it's the Magic Hour. The show didn't uh, really uh, do too well. Uh, there are other words you can use. Yeah. Well, uh, in fact, uh, we were taking bets in the writer's room. Uh, if we would last longer than the Chevy Chase talk show, which was historically short. You know, uh, boy, I'm so excited. <laughs> A lot of people wondered why I wanted to do my own TV show. And I confess I'm one of them. Uh, but I think the moment I knew I wanted to get back on TV was the day my daughters uh, tied me up and made me watch Oh Heavenly Dog twice. <laughs> and what did Chevy Chase and Jerry Lewis years before that and Magic all have in common? They didn't. Uh, they, were, huh? they, they were lazy. They didn't work. <laughs> at it. They, they didn't want to put the work in to make it work, uh, to succeed. Uh, God, yeah. love them. God love them all, but they thought they could get by on their personality. And yeah. Their that's not enough yeah it's a, a whole different animal the uh, uh doing a talk show and uh yeah yeah you, they didn't quite understand going into it what uh what that in, that into uh but uh, i went down there I, I actually had fun doing it i wrote a lot of jokes uh wasn't howard stern the first guest he wasn't the first guest uh but uh he he was early on and it was a huge deal yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know how big he was at that time until it leaked out. He was going to be on the show and his fans showed up outside. It was, uh, we uh, were taping at uh, Paramount Studios and uh, uh, crowds gathered to see Howard Stern drive by in a limousine. Hmm. And I realized, yeah, this, this is a, a pretty big thing. And I remember Stern just came right at Magic and said, well, now you've got the AIDS. Uh, you know, and, yeah. and thought, yes. you can't, you can't say that, but that's Howard Stern. Yes. And he came at magic, uh, you know, way over the top. And, and then that also mm-hmm. made that particular show very memorable and controversial. Yes. Yeah. It was a good, it was, yeah, it was actually pretty good television. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty riveting. So that was one of the highlights. Actually. You know, listen, I know about the HIV and everything, but I want to know about the life before HIV. I, you had the life that I want. You understand? Now, I know you, you present an image, a clean-cut guy, this and that, but I read about these booty parties that you used to have. And I'm dying to know. Nobody ever asked you the real question. Okay. Before, before AIDS and before all of that kind of stuff, you had the life, right? I mean, you were married, but you got to screw around. Is that correct? <laughs> No, that's not correct. It is not correct. No, that's you not did correct. have a little fun. No, this is life before, before I was married. Before, oh, oh, there was before you were married. Before I was married. So everybody hung out by the pool. Rap stars. Was it mostly black guys or we had some white guys? <laughs> we, we did have a few white guys. So white, white guy like me could have come to the party. Uh... You know, <laughs> so tell me, because uh, you've yeah, told me sure. before, yeah. like the first day you come in, uh-huh. for work and magic is going to come and he's going to yeah. uh, address all of the staffers and the writers mm-hmm. and everybody. Uh, tell us what, what that was like. Uh, well, 
Yeah, because he, he was supposed to be there every day and he was supposed to meet with the writers every day. And I saw him in that meeting and uh, and I leaned over to the writer next to me and I said, uh, how much want to bet? He says, there's no I in team. <laughs> and it took about five minutes <laughs> for that to come out. And, well, you, and, I know you're a huge yeah. basketball fan, so it must have yeah. been kind of weird that you're thinking, uh-huh. oh, my God, this guy, I love this guy. Yes. As a yeah. basketball player, and, and now uh-huh. here he's doing a TV show, and I don't know how, what I'm supposed to think about all of it. <laughs> well, I, I genuinely liked him, but uh, as I say, uh, I was there, I don't know, four or five months, and we're supposed to see him every day. Uh, he met once with the writers in those four or five months. Hmm. Uh, the only other time I saw him really uh, outside of the studio was – uh, I would take walks uh, around the Paramount lot and I was walking back and I saw him coming uh, into the studio in his sweats uh, shortly before taping. <laughs> so he wasn't, he, he wasn't given 110%. I'm, I'm afraid. No, he, he wasn't uh, that into it, but he was getting a, a, yeah. probably a pretty fat paycheck. He's a very, <laughs> so, he's a very admirable person, but that wasn't uh, his, that wasn't his mail you. Obviously. Yeah. But that was good because it it did introduce me to to Hollywood and it got me my writer's guild card. Mm. Uh, So I was pretty well set up. I knew the lay of the land. I, uh, I wasn't before that. I always, I never really wanted to go to Hollywood if I could help it because of all the stories I'd read about it. And you know, people have these thoughts in their head of, of, of these things and, and how great it must be work there but there's there are a lot of downsides as well and i was hoping to avoid that but as i say after the uh john report with bob ended uh i started i was talking to kit boss who worked at the seattle times and then he worked with bill nye uh he switched careers uh worked with bill nye in seattle on the original show And uh, Kit decided to take a chance and go down to, to um, Hollywood. And uh, so he know, knew the ropes. And uh, so, so I called him up and said, I'm, I, I think I'm going to take a chance and, and just, just move on there. And, and there's you and Jim Sharp might be able to help me. And uh, so uh, I was thinking of writing sample scripts. And Kit had said, well, you know, people are tired of reading Everybody Loves Raymond's and and simpsons they get those all the time yeah yeah Since they really like to see if you can develop characters as well even if it's for television instead of a movie but uh so they kind of like to read movie scripts right now and i thought yeah. well I, i'd always been upset because i didn't think i'd ever come up with a, a really good movie script idea but this actually does relate to almost live because i, I used to uh, as you remember go through the newspapers Yep, and look for setups for the uh, our news segment, the, the John Report. Yeah, we would write jokes for this. Uh, yeah. It was a fake newscast, really, that John would deliver. Yeah. And uh, but the the linchpin to it all was these uh, little excerpts that you would take from the newspaper, mm-hmm. and uh, and they would be okay. Here's the premise. Now see if you can write a joke to yes, what yes. was what was in the news and. Uh-huh. Uh, it was immensely helpful because nobody else knew <laughs> what was going on in the news except well, you. Well, mainly what I was looking for were uh, uh, for the John report, we'd like to keep it local. So I was looking 
for the local stories to yeah. play off of. Uh, but I, I would read the whole newspaper because, as you know, Pat, I like to stay informed. Welcome to the John Report. I'm John. Here's my report. The A1 Laundry on First Avenue has a sign that says, We accept Sonic tickets. Coincidentally, ticket gates at all Seahawks games will now post a sign that says, We accept laundry receipts. <laughs> so, uh... I, I was reading, and I, uh, they had this syndicated story from AP or somebody about these old people who were showing up for uh, like these publishers' clearinghouse contests, yeah. sweepstakes yeah, yeah, yeah. contests. And I read that this is about '98, I think '98 or '99, toward, right towards the end of Almost Almost Law. I read that, uh, and there were a couple stories in there. And there, uh, the children, these people, who some of them had dementia or, or something, you know, uh, just getting old and, and actually took them to across the country. One guy put his father on a plane and flew him there to show him that he didn't win basically. So I always had that idea in my head. I thought, well, that would make kind of an interesting little independent movie. If, if a, a son decides to drive his father back there uh, to, to, you know, not cruelly, but just to right. try to finally get it out of his head but I, I, I really didn't, I wasn't really thrilled with that idea because it seemed to me like one of those uh, fair to middling type of independent films. Not meaty enough or whatever? Yeah, because I kept thinking, well, okay, they drive along in the car, they have arguments, they reconcile, uh, things get better, then there's a big blow, blow up, and then the, at the end there's a big hug or whatever. <laughs> if, I, if I can't think of anything else, I'll write that, but that just doesn't. It's just like what I've seen before, and it wasn't until I started thinking about thinking of putting the uh, the place they're driving to in Omaha, Nebraska, because my family's from Omaha, right? Uh, not, not from Omaha. My family's from Hardington, Nebraska, up in the northeast corner. And uh, but you've been to Omaha, you so you kind of knew. Yeah, I've been to Omaha. I've been to uh, Nebraska. I've been to Nebraska a lot when I was growing up. We would go back there, uh, so I thought, oh, I, I kind of know that area that 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 would help and then i started thinking of my family and the family stories and the and the great characters in my family and um uh the one that showed up in the uh in in the film is the uncles who don't talk yeah yeah I they love used that to part. come over to our house because uh, uh, a lot of my dad my dad dad moved out here uh because uh some of his brothers had come out, come out here farm in in ferndale and uh, other places around here and so my dad was actually one of the younger brothers. He came out here, and uh, but they would come and visit, and they would they would literally sit in the living room ha- after having not seen each other for could be years, <laughs> and hardly say a thing. And then someone would say, "You still got that Chevy?" <laughs> you grant brothers, you are men of few words. Come on in. What's up, Woody? Nothing. How about you? Not much. You boys remember your cousin David? Bart? Lee? Cole? Hey. Man, it's been a long time since we all met his kids. Uh, what are you guys up to? Not much. Ray's foot's been bothering him. Ain't that right, Ray? It's okay. It just hurts. Well, I figured you wouldn't mind seeing as how you work with your Did you get that, Dad? I'm a teacher. I grade papers. Dad. I don't shuck oysters. Uh, Uncle Ray's foot hurts. I know. Everything else good, though? Yeah, a bunch of us 
Uncle Ray? Not really. So, so I thought, okay, that's a that could work. That's a good scene. And good so in I court, started. Yeah. yeah, and I kind of based. Uh, it's funny because the two movies I've got made, they both started being based on my dad, and ended up nothing like my dad. Um, yeah. So Bruce Dern is really not like my dad, but it kind of started there because my dad, uh, the other linchpin of it was having the uh, compressor solo, and, and that uh, that did happen happen to dad. Uh, your dad, thing, your dad was uh, uh, a workman, a carpenter. Yeah, he was a mechanic. Mechanic, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, he was always having his tools stolen, and uh, one time uh, a compressor was stolen. And so I started thinking of other things from my dad. Uh, he did uh, lose his teeth, uh, false teeth, by the railroad tracks, but it was actually down in Kent. He lived in a, in his later life, he lived in a little house down in Kent. And That's one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> uh, where well, <laughs> if people haven't seen Nebraska, yeah, he, he, uh, finally a set of false teeth is found yes. by the railroad tracks. But no, those those aren't them. Right. No. <laughs> What is well, the likelihood of that? Well, one uh, my wife, uh, Valerie, and I went to visit him one day, and he's sitting there talking to us, and he says, where's my teeth? So uh, he said, well, where were you? And he said, well, he said, oh, you know, I fell down by the by the road. So we went and looked for him, and it was actually Valerie who found the teeth. And uh, so when I would tell this story, and it, when you, down there uh, promoting the film, you do Q&As and stuff, and Valerie would usually be in the audience, and I would say, uh, yeah, she, my wife is mad at me because in the film, it's the son, the son finds the teeth. Uh, but in, in, in real life, it was actually my wife found it, and she keeps saying, I was the one who found the teeth. And I Damn tell it. her, and I tell you. Yeah. script. <laughs> Get it right. Well, well I you know, know. What, what I tell her is, well, you, you write your own damn movie then about yeah. it. And, that, that, you tell your own that. story. Yeah. So, I remember Keister yeah. used to tell this yeah. story. I always wondered if you had borrowed from his story, but obviously huh? that's not so. But huh? he used to talk about how he would he went into a restaurant like a Denny's or something with a friend of his, uh-huh. and some guy came in and said, uh, "You know, to the hey, I, I left a pair of gloves here yesterday. Uh, you don't have do you have a lost and found here?" I said, "Oh uh-huh. yeah, we do." And they pulled out this cardboard box from below the lunch uh-huh. counter that had a whole bunch of different items in it. And then, but when they take the, the box out, Keister and his friend notice that there's a bottle of corks in there. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, oh yeah, here's your gloves. Here you go. So then they yeah. come back supposedly yeah. a couple of yeah. days later and they uh-huh. say to the clerk, Hey, uh, you don't happen to have found a bottle of corks in here. They know it. It's yeah. there of course in the box. Yeah. The guy produces the box and, and, Oh, here they are. Here's a bottle of corks. And Keister goes, no, those aren't the ones. No. <laughs> so I always wondered if that was where your teeth story came from. But it, I'm happy to know it was actually from your own real. No. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it actually came. Uh, one of the things when I was writing Nebraska, I'd never written drama before. So I was trying to do a dramedy. Uh, so uh, what helped me through it was when I would, could find some place to put a little humor in it. And it, it, it did come from, oh, it would have been funny if I'd said to my dad, uh, uh, if my dad had said, those aren't mine. <laughs> and uh, it worked uh, 
for writing the script because I thought it showed that the father still had some wits about him. He wasn't just uh, completely gone. He could still yeah. give a give. No, that's a good. Little, that's really uh, good. So, so yeah, that, so that movie, uh, and, and we all vicariously lived through that amazing year with you. Uh, with Nebraska, you got nominated for a stinking Oscar for crying out loud. And then you go to the Cannes Film Festival, all these experiences you had. Yes. Uh, the, uh, it, it was an astounding year. And, uh, and then of course you go to the Academy Awards. You win the Spirit Independent uh, I think it's called Spirit Awards for best. Uh, Independent play. Spirit Awards was the night yeah. before. That's the casual awards where you don't have to dress up and everybody gets uh, stinking drunk uh, before it even starts. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, that uh, that is, after all, the spirit of things for an award, right? Well, that, by that time I was in my <laughs> that time I was in I was I was fifty eight or something by then, and and the award I won was, was for best first screenplay. And the Spirit Spirit Award goes to. It, and I, it took a lot of patience. Bob Nelson. Nebraska. Uh, I, I didn't write one for all those years because I really wanted this one. Okay, well, thank you so much, uh, Film Independent. This really is something special. Um, My wife asked me not to thank her tonight, so that'll save some time. Thank you, Valerie. Uh, This is really the fulfillment of a boyhood dream of one day becoming the oldest recipient of the first time Screenplay Award. So it's very special. Thank you. Took a lot of patience. Thank you, Alexander Payne, for directing and so much more. Considering the nature of this award, uh, I'm not going to reveal exactly Alexander's uh, involvement in the script, uh, but I will say that my original script was called California. And it was about a couple of teenage boys trying to score some weed. So those were excellent notes, Alexander. Appreciate that. Uh, Will Forte, who lost three pounds to play this role. Thank you, Will, for that. There's only one man alive who could play both MacGruber and David Grant. Thank you. And that brings us to the man of the hour, Bruce Stern. Bruce, Bruce took a role based on my own dad and made him live again. And Bruce has always said the only thing he wants out of acting is for the people to know that he can play. And I think if anyone didn't know it before, they know it now. Mr. Dern, you certainly can play. Thank you so much. So your very your very first screenplay that you ever wrote, yeah, you get Oscar nominated for. So yeah, I mean, well, all, uh, that's yeah. what I said at the beginning. That mm-hmm. this doesn't happen like that. Well, and and then you got to write a movie. Uh, you subsequently wrote a movie that you actually directed. And mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, Bob. Okay, but I don't. I always, I always do, Pat. I I I, uh, I don't think you ever truly directed an almost live piece. Uh, and yet, uh, you had the temerity, the uh, confidence to say, yeah. "You know what? I can direct a movie, and I'm I'm, I'm going to do it." <laughs> it's called the Confirmation, uh-huh. and it's a wonderful film. I, oh, I just uh, it really is, and 
Uh, I, uh, on my other podcast, I've been encouraging people to watch it. It's really sweet, special, and you did a hell of a job. Oh, and I can't, yeah, I yeah. can't believe somebody in their initial directorial <laughs> effort uh-huh. can put something together like that. It's, uh, I couldn't do it. What are your sins? I can't think of any. You haven't even dishonored your mom or your dad. I don't see my dad enough to dishonor him. Go to the truck, unlock the big box, bring me my wood toolbox. It's gone. What do you mean it's gone? I'm on the case, all right? Are you a detective? Nope. I'm a drywaller. What's your name? Hey, Drake. Are you on meth again? Don't change the subject. Yes, I'm on meth, okay? <laughs> what the hell? Your dad is a good man. He's got some demons, but you know, we all do. Yeah. Listen to what they say and then decide for yourself. Do what you think is right. Well, the reason I decided, a couple of reasons I decided to try and direct. One is, again, I was uh, in my late 50s. And by that time, it's, well, so what? If it just bombs or isn't any good, you give it a shot. If someone will let you do it. And uh, uh, the other one I had, uh, uh, my game plan was to hire really good actors who you hardly had to direct at all. Yeah. And uh, find a... a, a a cameraman. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, kind of a hidden secret about directing movies, especially at that level, uh, small, low budget, independent movies. movies is, if the director doesn't have a thought about how to do it, all the technical stuff, uh, the uh, camera uh, uh, cameraman will be glad to <laughs> uh, to take over and share his vision. Now, yeah. I, I I worked hand in hand with, uh, but on that, but, uh, I was more concerned about the performances, uh, because we had a low budget and only 22 shooting days. That pretty much means you have to shoot it like a documentary anyway. 22 shooting days. That was it. Yeah. So you you basically, you look for a few places where you can have some really great looking shots, but for the most part, you're, you're shooting like a documentary and, uh, so I did a lot of research on every actor that I brought on, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I knew that Clive Owen, Clive Owen hardly need any instruction. Yeah, your lead actor, Clive Owen. I think he liked working with you. It was a very tight shooting schedule, but he's such a brilliant writer, and he wrote a really beautiful, wonderful, touching script. And I love working with writer-directors because they know the intent behind everything they've written, and when you've got a really good script... Bob knows exactly why he's written it and what he wants to get out of the scene. And, you know, this is ultimately a character-based drama. And the fact that it was a first-time film for Bob, it, it, you know, it's not a film that's depending on huge tricks for the camera or whatever. It depends, the heart of the movie is the people in it. And he knows the world and knows these people better than anybody. So having him close to us the whole time was perfect. We found a young, great, actor jd Berher to play the son yeah he was great he was in saint vincent right right before that and uh i i he was so good at one point while we were shooting i i said he was sitting on the steps and i went over and i sat next to him and i said so uh, Jaden, i want it to look like i'm over here giving you direction but the problem is i can't think of a th- of a note to give you or a thing to say but I want to, I'm coming over here. I want to look like I'm, I'm a director here. Okay. And he said, yeah, okay. That's sure. great. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> but you know, we got Pat Oswald, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, Matthew Modine, Stephen Tobolowsky. Cause I yeah. knew all those guys had done a lot of independent movies. They knew what they were doing. 
And the heartbreaker we got was Robert Forster. Yeah, tell tell the story about Robert Forster, who was, just passed away a few months yeah, ago. Uh, you you have a nice story about him. Well, he was one uh, uh, we went for him is he he everybody loved Robert Forster in Hollywood, and uh, uh, I only had a uh, for someone his age, I only, I only had scenes, and I felt embarrassed to even put it out to him. But then I found out from his reps that he loves to work. If he likes the scenes you've written for him, he would love to do it. So he came up to Vancouver. I only saw him for maybe two days. And in that time, it was just amazing. Uh, uh, My wife, Valerie, again, uh, uh, just loved him. Uh, There was a point in my career when I stopped getting work and uh, I was getting lousy work and I had three, four kids two ex-wives. I was trying to get the kids through college. I began to worry that this was not going to happen for me. Uh, I was going to have to think of some other way to make a living. Uh, you got to be ready and you got to have a good attitude. And at that point, I had uh, well understood and, uh, and uh, internalized that three-step program. Accept all things. That gives you good attitude. Deliver excellence right now. That gives you the best shot at the best future you've got coming. And the reward of self-respect and satisfaction, and never quit. You can win it in the late innings if you don't quit. The story I, I think I share with you is that uh, he he had to go out and wait on the porch to come uh, get his cue to come into the house, and it, it was right at the end of our shoot, and it was just pouring rain. And uh, so he goes out there, and Valerie's out there having a cigarette, as everyone uh, who who knows her would would know she was doing. And uh, she sees him come out. She's, oh, I should leave so you can get, get ready. He goes, oh, no, you stay. We'll talk. And he says, it's kind of chilly. You want, uh, you want my coat? And she says, oh, no, no, no. So they're talking. And, and she tells him, no, it, it was November 20th. That's how I know exact date uh, because that's our anniversary. So she said, you know, today's our anniversary, and this is how I'm spending it. <laughs> and he, and uh, after we broke uh, for the setup for him to come and shoot a scene in the house. He went back to his trailer and, and got a gift and brought it back to Valerie for our anniversary. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So what a lovely human man. Yeah. And and you, like you said, he, he wasn't getting paid big money. He just liked no. to work and, yeah. uh, and was grateful for it. Well, you, yeah. You also, you also told me a story about the, the comedian stand-up comic, Patton Oswalt. Because hiking is not exercise. Hiking is the segue between the actual exercise you did in your 20s and 30s and then the gentle mall walking that you're going to (laughs) do in your 70s and 80s so that you'll fit into the tuxedo at the funeral home. Because you don't don't want them splitting the back of the jacket open. That's embarrassing. Come on. Die with some dignity. And he had to do uh, some walk from a car to somewhere else and, and... and so you, it required you to do a, yeah. more than a few takes. Tell, yeah. tell, tell us about that. I think uh, outside of watching you work uh, on Almost Live, this is one of the most amazing scenes to me, watching a, a comedian, a humorist work off the cuff, because uh, I just went over to him and said, you know, we're going to have you walk from here back to the car. It's about, few, uh, but I think I'd like to have that to tail off on. So, I haven't written any dialogue for that. Do you want to just make up, uh, say something on the way back? I, I didn't expect anything, really. He did it about maybe five or six times, and each time he told a different story. 
and wow. a and you're looking at the it's a it's a 10 second story and funny <laughs> 10, 10 or 12 oh yeah they were all it was hard to pick which one to use but uh did you uh, save all those outtakes do you have them somewhere uh i might still have them i i one of my regrets is i get them uh as an extra on a dvd yeah but the one he the one we ended up using uh was was saying he's telling the boy uh about uh, uh going online to try and find a a recipe and he ended up on stormfront uh but you know it's still a good <laughs> recipe <laughs> yeah he does that well, go yeah. go see that movie yeah buddy oh, thank you. now confirmation the conf is it the confirmation it is there uh, a you movie went with came- the article okay <laughs> Uh, a movie came out the same year. I know. Uh, called Cold Confirmation on HBO about uh, Anita Hill. Uh, how annoying is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Patton Oswald wasn't in the Anita Hill story, was he? Uh, I haven't watched it. I'm so I'm so incensed that they stole yeah. my title that I just can't watch it. And that little shit Justin Bieber did too. All you ever really want. All you ever really need is that home. He titles this song The Confirmation, even though the word's not even in the lyrics. That's what you should be mad about. Okay, I'd love to just keep talking to you about the, this kind of stuff and your amazing career. Um, and and what, briefly tell us what you're doing right now and what script you have most recently completed. And then let's get on to Almost Live. Oh, oh well, I, yeah, I, I wrote a script about... Uh, Joseph Welch, who, who was the uh, lawyer that the Army hired in their dispute with uh, Joe McCarthy. And he's the one who uh, had the famous... You know sense of decency, sir, at long last. Have you left no sense of decency? And I saw that no one had really written anything about him. He shows up in a couple of fictionalized movies, but uh, uh, more about Joe McCarthy... <laughs> Uh, so I thought uh, I'll try writing a, a script about him. So I, I did a lot of research and I read the, there are 36 days of hearings, the McCarthy army McCarthy hearings. What year and would I, that have been? That was, uh, 1953. 53. Oh, much. Yeah. Earlier. Uh, and I interviewed his grandchildren, uh, about it. And so I, yeah, I've written a script about that. It's going to be a tough, a tough all because it, it, not a lot of sizzle to that, uh, but you know it does tie into some things we're going through right now. So oh, for sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I wrote it as a uh, as I do a, a dramatic version, but I'm also going to try and write a book about Joseph Welch and even a documentary. Good. So Good. I, I just got to get him out there in some form, make a superhero out of this man. Yeah, he was a superhero. Yeah. Um, we could use a few of, jo- uh, of, of uh, <laughs> Joseph Welch's right now. Yes. Okay. So, Bob, let's let's talk about the show Almost Live. How did you get hired for that? Um, when did that happen, and how did it happen? Uh, well, I actually joined in 1989. I uh, was working at the Seattle Times, which is just a few blocks from the old King TV, and uh, I was working in advertising. Uh, after I'd been in radio as a producer for a few years and I switched over to the Seattle times and, uh, was working so in what, advertising. What, what radio uh, producing did you do? <laughs> I worked on we... KBI radio, uh, before it became uh, partisan. This is Bill Taylor, KBI 570 news theater of the mind coming up.
they they just changed to a talk news format right in 1980 and uh they uh but it wasn't uh, uh right wing or left wing it was just straight it was more newsy and and i worked uh i, I started out uh, doing the Larry King overnight, uh, running the board. You came to power in Libya in 1969, a long time ago. Do you have thoughts on who might succeed you? Well, I was still in college. And yeah. then after that, I worked for Mark Saban on his talk show. Uh, well, and, uh, yeah. A lot of people wouldn't remember Mark Saban's yeah. name, perhaps, but I thought he was fantastic. He was oh, he's, really yeah. smart and was yeah. really good. Yeah, very knowledgeable. But yeah. uh, you know, I, I thought I, I don't mind. I like working behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, in college, I was on radio, but I had a voice that that would only work for about a, a one and a half year period there with the FM radio. Uh, which is basically, this was my voice on the FM radio, which was... Oh man, look at my life, I'm a lot like you were. Oh, that was a, uh, that was a tasty new treat from Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, called uh, Old Man... Uh, well, actually, that's a Neil Young song, uh, uh, but uh, you know he he sings it with them. And, uh, and uh, next up, we're going to have uh, some Peter Paul and Mary. So I, I, yeah. So I was working behind the scenes and radio. And then you were, uh, weren't you uh, writing? Weren't you writing uh, or selling classified ads for the Seattle Times? Isn't that I, what you? I started out in classified advertising. Yeah, good and lord, that's a, what a mind-numbing job that must have been. Oh no, because then I could use my FM DJ voice. Oh yes, what um, and what type of automobile would you be selling today? <laughs> would you like? Uh, we have uh, several to choose from. Is if it's a Ford uh, Fiesta. <laughs> um, we could we could do that and oh, okay I can uh, and see the, the and the price right? and the price would be very reasonable if you want to put it in both the Seattle Times and the PI. Mm. So no, it was it was great training. Uh, but uh, yeah, and then I switched over into ad services, which is basically the uh, people who are between the salespeople and the composing room. And I'm sure you understand how much fun that would be. Yeah. Not, so, so, I, so yeah. how did how did you see your uh, career and your life yeah. going forward? Were you going to just well, keep selling yeah. classified ads? Or how <laughs> how do you go from there uh, to to writing comedy scripts and submitting them? How, well, I hit thirty years old old was at the times, and and I, that was kind of uh, a wake up call. And I thought I thought I would do something. My I, I wrote and and produced and and acted in comedy a uh, bit uh, in college uh, in my radio shows. And I thought, well, I, I could go back to that. And uh, there's this, it took me a while to really tune in to almost live. It'd been on the air three or four years before I really yeah. uh, noticed it. And then I started watching it and I said, you and John Keister and uh, everybody having, having some fun. And the year before I joined, Bill Nye joined and Ed Wyatt yeah. and, uh, and uh, Steve Wilson was already involved, uh, and uh, uh, I, I thought, well, yeah, I, I wrote in college. I'll write up a packet, and I'll I'll walk over to King TV. Uh, you did, so you just laid a bunch of 
a packet at the front yeah. desk of King and then walked away? Yes. And, and then uh, I put it to Bill Dayton, the producer. And the next day, I'm working in the uh, classified still then. Bill, Bill Dayton called me and said, I really like this, uh, all this stuff you've written. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't have any positions right now, but I want you to stay in touch and, uh, and uh, try again next year if, you, if you're still up for it. And uh, towards the end of the next season, uh, it, it was actually, a, remember in the old days when the newspapers used to report on this stuff, uh, Joe and uh, Nancy Guppy, mm-hmm. Uh, got a job in Hollywood, and I looked. I was reading that, thinking, "Oh, they just had two openings at Almost Live." So I wrote up another packet of material and sent it to Bill, and I managed to get on that year. Oh, that's how it I was. Had. A, yeah, it was a dream come through. I, I really, I really couldn't believe it. Uh, Heard that, um, and and I still carry a lot of guilt about this. Uh, hmm. that you, the very first bit that you. Well, I don't know if it's the first yeah. wrote, but it was the first one we were going to shoot yes. out, in, out in the field. And we shot it at my house yeah. in, in Redmond. Yes. And, it, and it had to do with, um, <laughs> uh, I was, I was called, it, the, I think the bit was called Mr. Negative. And yes. I was, and I was this yeah. jackass that uh, yeah. no matter what anybody did, I'd always find yeah. fault with it. Right. Um, my wife would be cooking in the kitchen and say, you know, you should have used more paprika there. That's what I would have done. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it was. And so, and then it also involved a little kid who turned out to be, we used my son, Chris, as the actor. Yes. Who had this dream. He wanted to be a cowboy. He wanted to go, uh, you know, live on a ranch and all that. And I shot that down <laughs> and, and telling him, uh-huh. you know, you're going to be in a bunkhouse with a bunch of guys with saddle sores. I mean, do you really uh-huh. want that for you? Uh-huh. Uh, and I thought it was really a funny bit and I thought it, we put it together and it yeah. was very good. And for some reason, uh-huh. and I don't know who, I guess it had to be Bill Stanton and made the decision. Nah, that's not good enough. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to run it. And I felt uh, like I, I failed you somehow because I nah. put my hand in it and, and, and there's no reason it shouldn't have run because we ran far, <laughs> far crappier pieces than that. Kind of would be that in the beginning and those packages I sent to Bill, I think I was better at, at writing for the page. So you could look at something on the page and go, oh, yeah, that could work. But uh, uh, the bit didn't really build uh, in a comedic way. It just kind of uh, I had you doing the same thing th- uh, throughout uh, right, right from getting to the end, it's it's it, uh, it should have built. It should have had a had dramatic arc. Even a one minute uh, piece should have that in it. So I I think, uh-huh. think that some of the things look look funny. So that's one of the things I really had to learn on almost live. My first year was uh, you got to be thinking of uh, the visual and 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 yeah. building it, uh, making it build. And uh, I think that's what we all had to learn. I mean, I look at some of the early stuff especially that i did and it's just downright dreadful it, and, it, and one thing is as the english professors will tell you yeah. brevity brevity you yeah. don't put words in there that don't need to be in there uh-huh keep it tight and concise yeah and that makes it funnier yeah uh, i i was doing pieces that were seven eight minutes long it was uh-huh. ridiculous <laughs> but yeah uh, it's a it's great training though because you have to you have to write a three minute sketch you have to create a world you have to create the characters 
and you have to tell a story in three minutes that builds yeah. to something. And, and I think that was the main, main problem with that piece. However, you atoned for that. Uh, none of that you, or maybe Chris, uh, Chris is going to listen to this, right? Uh, I, I think, think it was yeah. actually Chris's fault that that uh, piece sunk like that. And I've never said that before, but I'll say it now. Well, let's, he needs to hear it. Yeah. Take a, yeah, take a look at that and you tell me. Let's be honest, okay? But anyway, uh, whatever feelings you have about uh, your part in that disaster. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't a disaster, though. That's, uh, that's what's so unjust about it. It was a good piece. It was, about, it was about the sixth show in my first year that I finally got a piece on, and it was a live bit that you did called the Smoking and Drinking Council. Good evening. I'm Neil White for the Smoking and Drinking Council. Do I really need alcohol to relax and have a good time? In your case? <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, that wasn't too bad. Uh, uh, again, I didn't, uh, when I look at back at it now, uh, your performance really sells. sells the, uh, it does, again, it doesn't build. Uh, but it got a good response from the audience. And I'd say, uh, uh, I was a fan of yours from watching the show before I was on it. And, uh, to have you doing a piece of mine, I, I, in those years, I didn't really have a thought about trying to act or, or, or being in my own uh, bits. Uh, it, eventually I started writing things that I thought I might be able to do. But in the beginning, I was just so happy to hand it off to people who were, much better at it than I was. So uh, well, you, and then I'll tell you at the end, that was my first bit on the air. It went over pretty well, and uh, I went back up to my desk that night, and you had left me a lovely note thanking you for for writing that piece, and uh, and uh, that's when I felt like I was finally uh, starting to figure out <laughs> how to write for an almost slot and. Uh, uh, that night, I had a, my first con contract called for six weeks uh, out of 26, or, or mm. a 30-week contract. But, but after six weeks, Bill Stanton could fire me. Mm. And so that night, we, we usually got to a, a bar or something afterwards, and I was out there with Bill. And the whole night, I've never told him this, the whole night, it was week six, I was hoping that he forgot that was in my contract because if he didn't fire me then, <laughs> I, he had to renew the other 24 weeks. So I kept waiting for him to fire me while we were drinking. <laughs> Why would he fire you? I think <laughs> I, I would talk to any, I, and, and I'm, I'm very confident in this, any any person who worked on that show, whether it be yeah. the writing staff or the any actors, the crew, yeah. anybody, they all would single you out as the preeminent writer on the show, This writing the smartest yeah. stuff, the funniest stuff. And and I would go to these writers meeting. I I can't remember. Uh, was it Tuesdays? Yes. And and I would just uh, you know I'd throw in a couple of things. I uh -huh. I better I better offer something here. And then the uh, dessert at the end of the meeting, or usually was near the end, was Bob's now going to read the scripts that he has come up with for uh -huh. this. Yeah. And and <laughs> and it's not just your writing, which is superb, but the way you say stuff it just made me fall out of my chair every week and i other people were enjoying it too but not as much as me i just it well, just killed killed me every time and i i, I said man i hope he puts me in that bit because I, I, that is going to be so damn good
Well, thank you, Pat. Uh, I mean, well, one of the things, uh, I mean, one of my heroes was Bob Newhart. So I, uh, I was going to ask you, who were your influences? And, yeah. and I would, I would think so, Bob Newhart would be one. <laughs> so since I wasn't, I, I, and I'm not as good an actor as Bob Newhart by any means, but uh, I, one of the things that occurred to me early on on Almost Live was since I'm not an actor, uh, I can probably try and do deadpan like Bob, Bob Newhart. Yeah. Try oh, and yeah. Im- imitate him, and that could help get me through, through, and also write pieces geared towards that. Well, there's things in a in a written piece that that you can't really write. I mean, you can put it parenthetically, I guess. But you, uh, mm-hmm. what I one of the things that made me laugh so hard, I because I was when I was growing up, I I just uh, laughed so hard at people like Jack Benny and Bob mm-hmm. Newhart. Because and, Bob and, they, and Bob and Ray and Bob and Ray, and they weren't yeah. afraid to put <laughs> long, awkward pauses, yeah, into scenes because that's that's what life is really like, and so it's so mm-hmm. relatable. Don't make a move. This is a stick-up. What? You heard me, Mister. Mister, put down that gun. Shut up. Now come on, your money or your life. <laughs> Look, bud, I said your money or your life. I'm thinking it over. And a lot of your stuff was just your face, just what you must uh-huh. be thinking right then. Or yeah. there were not, there weren't words being spoken, <laughs> but they said so much more just by the awkwardness or yeah. the or the silliness of the pause. And well, uh, I, I think uh, one of my fa- I, I don't really think I think about. Uh, I was on there ten years, wrote a lot of pieces. Pieces really think a lot about them, or or even rewatch them. Yeah, but there are a few that I still uh, hold dear, and one of them was was basically based on what we were just talking about, low low key baseball network, which I did oh, with I you. Lo- I love that piece. And uh, I didn't that, think that I was, was good in it, but you were because, fantastic. Because, like you say, I was doing the deadpan. You were doing the pregnant pause uh, for great comedic effect. And we got to work with Dave Niehaus and Rick Riz. I've always loved the great voices and calls of the best baseball announcers. And my first guest here is certainly among that elite group. He is Lance Liggett of the Low Key Baseball Network. Welcome, Lance. <laughs> Thanks. Now, Les, for those in the audience not familiar with the Low-Key Baseball Network, why don't you explain what that is? Okay, well, the uh, Low-Key Baseball Network is for people who like to watch baseball, uh, but perhaps they don't care for all that noise. I see. That's very interesting, Lance, and thanks for uh, sharing that with us. Or it's uh, for people who uh, maybe they don't like to get excited. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, my job is to make sure that they don't get excited. Excited. I was geeking out over that, and that's why I <laughs> so, think I, I kind of, I, I think I overdid my part because I was truly wetting uh-huh. my pants being on <laughs> the set with these two uh-huh. iconic guys. Uh, you know, the, my yeah. I love baseball anyway, and yeah. these guys were like uh, uh-huh. demigods to me. Yeah. So, uh, well, but you... you <laughs> It, I, I always tell people if that piece it had not had you uh, as the driving part of the bit, as the joke, uh, it would, it could not have, it would not have worked. But you well, were, it, well, it, <laughs> it, it did go back to my college FM radio, uh, DJ DJ, because, yeah, yeah. uh, I, I, so I, usually in live bits, I was pretty nervous. Uh, I, I was pretty anxious because, like I said, I never, 
I've never even called myself an actor, even after 10 years in Almost Live. So it was basically, how do I get through this? And uh, so, but that character was, I, I didn't have to say much. And the, the premise of it was that uh, <laughs> some people, some people get nervous hearing these announcers who are yelling and, and trying to make it exciting. <laughs> and this guy was for, so he talked really low and uh, people know, that, who maybe that, that have was, heart conditions. Yes. Or doctors <laughs> so he, say you're not supposed to get too <laughs> excited. So this is so, perfect. Thank Rick, you. one thing I uh, really love about baseball announcers is their trademark call. And when the Mariner hits a home run, your trademark call is goodbye baseball. Yep. That is. Wow. That is fantastic. That's so great. Uh, Lance, what is your signature call? Uh, that was a good play. <laughs> and, and it'd be a grand slam home run. run and it would be in right? striking contrast to yeah. what Niehaus or Rick yeah. Riz had just done. So. And Steve Wilson found some great footage for us to use. The best, some, some, some iconic, you know, when Edgar hit the double off the wall and, and everybody score, or, uh, scored, you know, it was uh, things like that. So the guy could just sit there saying, Soho hits it. <laughs> Looks like he broke his bat, but uh, don't worry, they have lots more of those. <laughs> Nothing uh, much happening now. Uh, everybody scores, and uh, we'll be right back after these messages. I like the little asides, too, Bob, where you say, like, ah, oh, looks like he might have broken his bat on that play, but don't worry, they've yeah. got a lot more. Yeah. Well, those are fun things for me. Now, Rick, uh, your call was great, but I would love to hear you do one of the classic plays in baseball. It is the bases loaded home run. Well, Hank, I'll tell you what, I'd love to do it for you, but I think that call belongs to uh, one of the greatest announcers of all time, my partner, Dave, Niehaus. Dave Niehaus. How would you like is, to Is he Dave? here? Dave is backstage. Is Dave here? Dave, come on out. Dave, uh, do, do you know Lance Liggett and his work on the low-key network? Uh, you know, in a way, when I was in the hospital, the doctor told me not to get excited in the head. Now, Dave, you are the man when it comes to making the big call. Would you mind doing one for us? Sure. Here is John Wetland's 2-2 pitch on the way now to Edgar Martinez. Swung on and belted! Back to the warning track, Bernie Williams. The wall, get out the right hand and the mustard grandma! It is grand salami time! It took, you took us right back there again, Dave. Lance, would uh, you show us what you would do? Sure. Okay. Edgar batting. It's a good hit. And it's get out that loaf of bread and some meat, Mama. It's uh, time for a big sandwich. What, what are, and, and I don't, I know you're uncomfortable with, uh, uh, self uh, praise, but what, yeah. uh, so I don't think of it that way. But what are some of the uh, other bits that you're proudest of that you thought that that was pretty good? Well, the, the one I was most known for is Uncle Fran. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, maybe I tend to be too self critical. I don't really think so, though. I think you can, instance, look back, and I I kind of wish I'd elevated that a little more i think the first one i did about eight of them and i think the first one was pretty much the format and and it it, it 
worked okay. It's time once again for Uncle Fran's Musical Force. Hi kids, I'm Uncle Fran. I'm a little ticked off. Sometimes I get mad, but I will always be your friend. Hi kids, and welcome to Uncle Fran's Musical Forest. Let's start today with a riddle. Is it rational to jump to conclusions just because your boyfriend had a few innocent drinks at your best friend's apartment and passed out in her bathroom? It makes you realize what an ugly, vicious thing jealousy is, especially in the hands of a self-victimizing woman. Right, Mr. Raccoon? Uh well, um... Kids, do you know the phrase, petty-minded witch? <laughs> well, here's a song about her and all her kind. They call her the Ice Princess, gold medal winner of the hysterical Olympics for being the coldest bitch this side of Katrina bit. So it's, it's weird having your main character be something that you kind of have re regrets about. I could have, I, I could have made that better. But uh, oh yeah, well everything could yeah. be better, I suppose. But <laughs> Uncle felt, Fran was, yeah. uh, if people would remember, he uh, is a supposedly a kid, uh, a kid show host yeah. of all things, and he's the most, uh, he's the most cynical and per, <laughs> perhaps unethical, yeah. uh, if not downright uh, perverse person uh, that could be doing a kid show. Yeah, and and he's angry. He's, well, he's very angry. He's, he's a, bitter he, because he thought he was going to be a rock star or something. Thing. Yeah. And he's got yeah, an yeah. ex-wife, and he, he he can't help but go off on her all the time. And yeah, it's well, my story. favorite my favorite part was Bill Staten uh, played uh, did the the puppet, and uh, <laughs> and he was actually what's funny about that is kind of a reversal because Bill Staten and the puppet were playing the deadpan in that, basically reacting to this angry guy. Say, Mr. Raccoon, do you ever get jealous? Huh? Oh, um, well, yes, sometimes I get jealous of other raccoons nuts. What did you say? Uh, nothing. I didn't say anything. You know, raccoons don't gather nuts. Squirrels do. I know that. I made a mistake. Let's sing a song now. I wonder what you were thinking. I wasn't thinking anything, okay? Let's just sing the damn song. Oh, you want a song? Yes. You want a song? Yes, yeah, yeah. There's a song for you. That's called the Owl Song. I hope you like it. You see, kids, Mr. Raccoon Man's problem is that he never developed a sense of humor about himself. That's why I wrote him this song called the low self-esteem Mr. Raccoon Man song. You may not be very talented, and you may not be very smart, and chicks may not really like you much, but don't forget, you've also got something hanging from your nose. Well, that's all the time we have for today, kids. So long, kids, from Uncle Fran. I'm a little ticked off. Sometimes I get mad. Hold on. But I'll always be your friend. So long, kids. So, but th those are fun to do. Uh, yeah. uh, Steve Wilson w uh, was a big help in those. We shot it again. I probably should have shot those live on the show, but I was just I was just afraid I would screw up. So we'd always yeah. tape them. <laughs> well, the, the 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 fact about the matter was the show was called Almost Live, and it was taped. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, let's face it, that was a live show. We rarely, yeah. we rarely stopped down. The audience was there and present and yes. it was intimidating to be performing in front of P 
people uh-huh. yeah. and their expectations. It was, it was yeah. kind, of, kind of scary. <laughs> no, none of us yeah, have really uh, experienced doing that in our lives before. So well, okay, it's fun to do the light pieces, but I didn't think I was necessarily built for it. But uh, when they worked, it, it was great fun. It um, really was. It really was. Uh, I like to get I did a uh, one street walking lawyers of Aurora Avenue. I like that because it was very short. New on NBC. Your resume is very impressive. But as you must know, like most law firms right now, we just don't need another lawyer. I'm sorry. He was a victim of supply and demand. But now he's one of the new breed of lawyers who are taking the law into their own hands and into the streets. They're the street walking lawyers of Aurora Avenue. Having trouble finding work, so they were out street walking on Aurora Avenue, which was, as you know, right outside our office. Yeah, <laughs> you and I shared an office in the in uh, the later years, and we were about six inches from cars going sixty miles an hour down Aurora. Uh, <laughs> I was always, I was always waiting for one to come crashing through our wall. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that piece in particular is one where you mentioned that you wanted to to build to something, and it and that one did. It did with that final line. It was great. It's it start with me as the uh, not too good looking lawyer. There was Bill Nye, and then Steve Wilson, all decked up as the fancy lawyer, and then Ed Wyatt pulls up. So yeah, it kind of built from. Yeah, and then, no, it, and then and then Bill. It's a perfect uh, piece. Hi, hi. Now you look like you could use a friend. What are you charging? Depends on what you need. Uncontested divorce. I can do that. For fifty dollars, I'll give you a consultation drive around the block. For two fifty, I'll stay up all night with you and do the paperwork. Sounds fair to me. Great. Hey, how about my friend here? Hi. Hi. Ever wonder what it would be like with two lawyers? Sure. Why not? It is. Yes, they're sleazy, and they're lawyers, and NBC's got them, the street-walking lawyers of Aurora Avenue. Yeah, well, what a great finale. That's just perfect. And it's about a minute long, so I like yeah. that. Uh, we did some things. I, I kind of like doing, I was more of an Act 3 guy. Uh, act 1, we usually reserved for very visual, maybe even slapstick sometimes, like a Billy Kwan. Uh, action yeah, the, stuff, the bit or big or big and loud, like I did yeah. a Ros- Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium bit, something yeah, that but that just couldn't be ignored because it was so in your face. Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium is down the road. We swear we won't ever be back. It ain't gonna happen. Forget about it. We're shutting it down. We've lost our lease. Can't find it. Don't care. Well, the thing about uh, Roscoe's actually, I don't, I don't think of this, but. Uh, uh, on paper, Roscoe's was shot like uh, all the, I think all the Uncle Fran's run in Act Three because it's just a couple of guys in front of a green screen. Uh, but so on paper, uh, Roscoe's is you in front of a green screen. And so right. Bill Staten had just p- penciled it in there because of that. Well, I had a piece that week that I wasn't really proud of about a urine drug tester. And the- <laughs> I remember that piece. Tom Chase. Urine drug test monitor. And it came from a satiric place of King TV had just started testing people. Uh, They didn't test us, but if you were a new hire there, no matter what your job was, you had to be drug tested. And I thought that was ridiculous because we weren't flying planes. 
Uh, the most you could do is fall off your, your chair. Right. Uh, TV. Uh, and I thought, well, well, if, if it's not doing their job, just fire them or, or whatever, but to be testing people who are in accounting or, or something. So I had this idea to make fun of that, but, but I realized too late that my piece wasn't really a satire. It was mainly making fun. And it seemed to be making fun of this guy having this, uh, terrible job of being a urine drug tester. So I, but again, <laughs> But it was a field piece with a lot of different cuts, not a lot of action, but at least it had a visual to it. So Bill had slated that into act as the act one piece. And I was in uh, post-production with Bill and we were looking at the pieces and we're looking at urine drug tester and you're going, well, there's a couple. And uh, you were very good in that, by the way, as well. Uh, uh, but it was, it just wasn't well, working as. I a, think a lot of people would always think hey we're gonna do a piece about urine let's make yeah. sure we get cashman in there he's yeah and perfect. I think, uh, other people on the uh, uh, urine is not a really funny word either uh it, it mainly mainly makes you gag a little bit uh, so <laughs> that was another you know there are other words you could use that have a hard p or whatever uh yeah yeah uh so it's not a good word i think there are other people in the staff going, are we really gonna lead with a piece about urine <laughs> and so, so, so Bill Staten and I are in post-production and we're watching the pieces. We watched that. And then we got to Roscoe's Rug Emporium, which neither of us had seen. We just kind of heard you kind of pitch it maybe in the meeting. And we're watching this and it's just like maybe one of the best pieces almost live ran in 15 years. Wow. And here we are with a urine piece leading the show. And I don't know which... I think Bill and I looked at each other and had the same thought and I basically said, you know, why don't you run that in act one? That's it's, it's, I know it's one shot, but it's action. He's, he's excited. He's, you're doing this one take, this guy just rambling, rambling, terrific comedy. Uh, So you uh, fell on your sword for me. Yeah, well, maybe God Bill. I think maybe maybe Bill said that one of us said that, but we both were in total in agreement. And uh, well, that's, uh, that's it, nice. It, I I yeah. probably hear more about that piece than anything <laughs> I ever did. Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium going out of business since 1957. But yeah. uh, p- people just can't. Uh, I mean, I think about this all the time. The, the show ended in 1999. It was two years before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I think of all the crazy stuff we would do there. Yeah. You know, they, we'd run around King's building, which was a sizable building. So we had lots of places we could shoot. They had boardrooms. They had, mm-hmm. you know, uh, below the basement sorts of duct work and all kinds of things. And we, but we'd run around with guns and, and yes. wearing silly costumes. We would throw dummies off the roof of the building down onto the street below uh, all these things that uh, uh, you remember Tracy Conway played the part of a prostitute one time and was yes. walking down Aurora Avenue and, sh- and uh, actual cars stopped. And tried to drop. <laughs> That's and right. Yeah. All these, these goofy things that we did without license, without a- yeah. any concern that this should not, this probably is inappropriate. Yeah. I mean, when you got right down to it, King was a, a business company. I mean, yeah. they, yeah. They they had serious people in management and in charge, but somehow 
either they weren't aware of it or uh, they they just looked the other way because we just got away <laughs> with everything there. What oh. a great what a great culture to to yeah. work in. I know King TV and most other stations are not that way anymore. It's much uh-huh. more buttoned down. Yeah. Uh, on a personal level, I used to do all kinds of goofy stuff. I'd, <laughs> I'd fall down the stairs and huh. and uh, I'd walk into doors and just, you know, dumb, stupid, physical bits and things. Yeah. You don't do at a Microsoft, for example, or, or yeah, whatever. But uh, so yeah. that made it, that seemed to give us, <laughs> Uh, an unwritten license to do whatever we wanted, and by yeah. golly, we did. Yeah. There couldn't have been a, a more perfect time for that show to be on the air in Seattle. With that. I've heard you say that. You said that it was yeah. the perfect time of change in Seattle, too. Yeah, and Ke- and, and John Keister's uh, uh, brought this up a lot too. And uh, you know, John, growing up in Seattle, he knew this town inside and out, and he could yeah. see this wave coming. Uh, it it and not just the music and the grunge, uh, a lot of things were happening. And one of the things that kind of cracked us all up is like, uh, it was this nice town slice city that wanted to get to grow up and wanted to be a player on the national scene. Yeah. And it was, so it was kind of hilarious, uh, in a way the, the working so hard to transform Seattle. Uh, whereas we were kind of looking at it saying, you know, we kind of like this. Seattle, uh, you know, look at where we, uh, King five was at South Lake union is now been overrun by Amazon. It became, oh, yeah. it became, it was taken over by all of this stuff. Uh, and it became so successful that the land below the building of King TV was worth more than the building that was sitting there. So they, they sold King TV and destroyed it. Uh, the yeah. building. And it uh, wasn't even an old building. It it reminded no, me of, no. of the kingdom. It did, you yeah. know, what did it live on yeah. 20 years? And oh, okay, uh-huh. we can dispose of it now. <laughs> but look at that. Uh, Lake Union area was our play- playground. Uh, there were a lot of mom and pop shops and trophy shops. And yep. And they, so we, yeah, we could literally go right out our front door there. Or had a, had sets built for us all over the place. And being, being it wasn't as intense as going to downtown Seattle. You go out there. There's there's hardly any traffic and uh, uh, great backdrops. Uh, I remember the in the early days. In the early days, we uh, we had vans, stationed vans, but there was no signage on them, so we could drive uh-huh. around, <laughs> uh, pretty much anonymous. And and uh, yeah. uh, and I remember one of the very first things I ever did was was with Keister, and it, and it was called. Um, inside Broadmoor or something like that. I remember that piece. I saw it before it was on the show. John, it was John's yeah. idea. And, and the yeah. idea was that we're going to, we're going to breach the walls of Broadmoor and mm-hmm. see what, what this gated community looks like inside. Mm-hmm. And so John, you know, see John pull a ladder up and he climbs over the wall into Broadmoor. <laughs> and then the idea was that Broadmoor would be very much different than we, than most people would think it'd be mm-hmm. actually terribly rural it would be uh, almost like a farm community inside there. And so we wanted to shoot um, just the most podunk looking area we could. Just so much the opposite of what we imagined Broadmoor would be like. So there would be cows and sheep running around and tractors and that kind of stuff. So we drove around South King County in our unmarked van yeah. looking for it. We just said, we got to find the perfect place. It's got to be. 
It's got to be so per. And then we come upon this farmhouse. And we can see there's a herd of, I don't think sheep come in herds, but there's a, a flock of sheep uh, behind the house. There's a rusting, not running tractor in the front yard. I mean, it just was like, oh man, we could not have scouted a better location to do this shoot. Yeah. So I go up to the house and I knock on the door huh. and, and I'm keep when I, how am I going to explain what we want to do here? But nobody answered the door. And so I kind of look around through the windows and nobody's here. There's no cars here. <laughs> and then we decide, let's just shoot here anyway, uh-huh. which, which we did. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, uh, it, it just turned out to be a perfect location for the shoot. This is Broadmoor? Broadmoor, yeah. What were you expecting? Well, you know, somehow I thought it was going to be a, just a lot different than this. I don't know. Oh, great. Now those sheep have moved across, and I'll have to go to my nine iron. Uh, well, please, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I interrupted your game. I thought it was good. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Where do you think you're going? Well, I was going to go back out. I'm sorry. I didn't want to. I, I, I didn't Look, mean to. Look, Watch, you've seen Broadmoor. You can never leave here. Never! <laughs> you can never leave Broadmoor! But I always thought years later, or maybe even that coming weekend, uh-huh. that these that these people who own this farm this house yeah. might have been somehow watching the show that <laughs> night and they go hey dolores that sort of looks like our place yeah. Yeah, see, <laughs> those look like our sheep out there too <laughs> and i thought man <laughs> well i guess it's just a coincidence because somebody would have asked permission if they yeah. were going to shoot here after all <laughs> oh yeah i'm sure they would have yeah. that's the just the crazy kind of but how much fun wildness fun of the show it that, was so much just, fun like i said before uh, uh, i was on almost like 10 years and i feel like i got away with things it was was uh you can't have any more fun working and it, it, it really wasn't working so uh, so, uh, uh no matter how hard uh, you, you supposedly worked or time you put into it uh yeah. it was great and like you said there uh, the motto on Almost Live was shoot first and apologize later. Yeah. Because, yeah. like you say, we couldn't afford to get permits uh, to shoot anywhere. Yeah, uh, that's true. Even, even when we went to downtown Seattle, uh, we wouldn't get a permit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, you, uh, you've always said to me, and and I've talked at the beginning of this, as we're going to wrap up here in a second, that you, you know, you've had enormous things happen in your life you've Mm -hmm. you've written these movie scripts you've directed a movie and all the things that have happened to you you worked on the magic show and and you worked uh worked on an animated film uh down in san francisco Mm -hmm. Uh, all all these incredible life experiences but you've always told me the best job the most fun the happiest i ever Mm -hmm. was was working on almost live uh yeah well, uh, I was, t- for once, I was telling you the truth, Pat. It was, uh, it's about time. <laughs> is it because there uh, wasn't, you didn't feel an enormous uh, amount of pressure? Is that, that's part of it. I kind of, you know, I grew up liking shows like, uh, Mary Tyler Moore show at, uh, you know, Minneapolis TV station and, uh, Dick Dutton Van Dyke. Uh, yeah, but, uh, Dick Van Dyke, but there's also WKRP and, uh, the thing yeah. that hasn't, 
uh, with Mary Tyler Morris, those were both very low rated <laughs> stations and radio stations. Near, nearly canceled. Yeah. That I just like that. I didn't really want to be working at the, at the big one where there's all this, pre- I, I liked under the radar and yeah, King, me too. TV, King TV was the big station in town and probably still is top rated. I don't know. But, uh, on the other hand, we were the clowns in the basement, and they did pretty much ignore us yeah. and, and let us do what we wanted. So, we, yeah, I, I always liked that concept of uh, you could do whatever you wanted. Uh, I mean, the difference now is that, uh, as you know, you, you write a piece for Almost Live, and you probably get to shoot it and have yeah. it on the air in a few yeah. days. Now I have projects in Hollywood that are still alive from 15 years ago that are still trying to, people are still trying to sell them. Uh, and I've written several drafts or, uh, and, and, you know, in 15 years, I've had uh, two movie movies made and one pilot for a TV show. Yeah. So uh, to me, that's, uh, uh, it, it's, <laughs> you can see why I, I say, working on TV was much more fun. And so what I do now feels much more like a job and there are many more things you have to go through. Every time you write something, uh, you have to go in and have several meetings and you get 10 pages of notes, no matter what it is. And uh, you go through several drafts. Well, writing as you do is, is such a lonely craft too. You, it's just you, uh, and, and you, and, and at least almost like we had a, a staff of people that supported each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds yeah. hokey, but I, I, you know, we all heard tales about Saturday night live and, yes, yeah. and the backbiting and the uh-huh. drugs and the, you know, people fighting to get their pieces on the air. And yeah, I just, for the most part, that never happened at almost <laughs> people, everybody well, was such a, such yeah. a gentle in, yeah, in, yeah. Very, in varying degrees, but I mean, yeah. just, nobody was, uh, we just didn't feel like we were competing <laughs> with each other. We were all on this team and we were having fun. And man, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Well, it's strange to look at because w- what you should do theoretically, and, and Joel McHale did this to perfection. Uh, uh, you, if you go on a local show like that, you don't want to spend more than two or three years there. And then you want to get to Hollywood. And there, but there were a lot of us on almost live who really liked what we were doing and realized that as far as creatively, we would get to create and mm-hmm. perform and produce uh, much more than we could in Hollywood. And uh, uh, so it, a lot of us, it wasn't a goal. And uh, like uh, John went down there for a while I know, I know, and you you won't probably uh, say these things, but I know that Hollywood wanted you and you to come down. But you had a family, and you had a, had a life going up here in the Northwest, and and uh, uh, you uh, you you treasured that. So uh, to to uproot everything and go to L.A. Uh, is, is actually a huge decision, and and John. Yeah. Yeah, decided he wanted to come back and raise his family here. I never actually applied for a job uh, writing. I mean, what I should have been doing after two or three years was trying to get on Letterman or something like that. But I was having too much fun. And uh, so I, I never did. And then I say when uh, Jim Sharp asked me to come down, that was the first time I 
I did. I knew that when Almost Live ended, I would probably have to uh, move to Hollywood and give it a try because I didn't know what else to do. But uh, when the show when the show ended, did you think, well, I guess, I guess I'll go be a car salesman now or something? <laughs> or did you say, no, I'm gonna con- I'm gonna stay uh, as a writer. I'm gonna find a way to continue doing this because this is what I love and it's what I frankly I think I'm good at. Well, I thought I should uh, give L.A. at least one chance, give it a shot. So uh, even before Nebraska was option, uh, we uh, were fixing up our house to rent out, and we were going to move down uh, to L.A., and uh, I was going to knock on doors and use the contacts I had. Uh, But uh, fortunately, uh, Bill and I did another show in, in Seattle right after John Report with Bob, and he hired me for a while. The Eyes of Nye. The Eyes of Nye. The Eyes of Nye. The Eyes of Nye. Uh, So what I did when I wrote Nebraska, because like I said, Kip Boss had told me write a movie script. So I did write Nebraska up and I sent it to five. And correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will again, but you told me, and I think I have the number right, that you rewrote that script 60 times. Am I right? Went through it at least 60 times. Not from a start rewrite, to but I mean, yeah. you've made two yeah. corrections yes. in the entirety of I mean, that's how yeah. hard yeah. it is to write a, a script, <laughs> a movie script. And yeah. that's what you did. So I, I decided, well, I, I know people in television. I can probably get a TV job in LA and then I'll see how it goes. But uh, I don't know anybody in movies. So I'll, maybe I'll send it to one of these contests. So I I scouted the contest to find which ones were legitimate and which ones had people uh, backing them who were actual players in Hollywood. And I sent it to five of them and it was rejected by, it didn't get past the first round in all five. Uh, and then the last one that I sent it to called me up and said, Oh, there was a mistake. There was another Bob Nelson who submitted a script and uh, yours actually has advanced and it kept advancing in this contest. And at a certain, uh, it was a contest where you, where you actually got to go down. It was Paramount sponsored, which uh, ironically ended up with Nebraska years later. But Paramount uh, sponsored it. You, go, you went down there and they actually paid you hmm. to work on your scripts. And if it got to a certain point and they liked it enough, they, they would uh, make the film. So I had to go to the uh, producer at that time, Julie Thompson of Eyes and I, and say, uh, I might have to leave in a couple of weeks because I wrote this screenplay and she said, Oh, I'd like to write. I'd like to read that. And she came back the next day and said, I liked your script. And I know a couple of fellows who are making films. Uh, uh, I, I'm on the board of, uh, with them of a charity and I'd like to try and slip in this script because it's kind of what they're doing. And uh, that's how, how it got started. So she got the script wow. to the, uh, the people who produced Nebraska, they had, they had worked with Alexander Payne, the director of Nebraska before on a great movie called election. Yeah. In the nation's capital, a new leader has found a place in the halls of power, but her story began in the halls of high school. We'll move on now to the presidential race with three candidates running. The first is Tracy Flick. Never underestimate an overachiever. Looks like you could use a cupcake. Election. Cast your vote. But don't vote at all! 
Alexander Payne was from Nebraska, so it all it all because uh, you know there's a lot of things that come together, uh, and sometimes you just get lucky. And um, yeah, well, it just shows you that nobody does anything by themselves. We it's it's connections, it's people you know, it's yeah. people at the right time somebody takes mm-hmm. interest or they're in the right frame of mind. Yeah, uh, a million things that happen. <laughs> Well, I could tell you if I hadn't been reading those setups for the John report that that day in late in the late nineties and seen that thing about uh, sweepstakes, uh, uh, I probably wouldn't be talking to you today about movies at all, just almost live. Because why? Why so standoffish? Because, because, yeah, I know. <laughs> so yeah, well, you know, no, I think Bob, uh, you you yeah. you have you have a, you're a fountain mm-hmm. of ideas. There would have been uh, something else if. Uh, I don't think, I think I've I've had ideas since, and in, as you say, the confirmation got made, but I don't think the confirmation would have necessarily uh, got me into Hollywood. Uh, so again, it's sometimes you just get lucky, and if you can if you can get your foot in there, then you can get people to listen to other things. Uh, uh, but uh, I'm not sure I've ever written another movie script that would have uh, got me in there. I probably. W- would have ended up writing uh, jokes for some late night show. It's, Are you hearing that little ding? Oh, is that time's up or that's is it my, dinner? That, that's my phone. Uh, Joel McHale is texting. Oh, me, so well, finally, he's finally agreed to Joel be on McHale. the podcast. Hey, here's something. Yeah. This is something I was thinking about the other day, and I don't really have anywhere to go with it. But I think about the people that was, were in our cast, and John Keister, uh had kids that came along at some point mm-hmm. and I had kids, but uh, Steve Wilson, no kids. Yep. The guppies, no kids. Tracy yep. Conway, no kids. Bill Nye, no kids. <laughs> uh, at the time, Ed Wyatt didn't have any kids. That's Bill right. McHale yeah. didn't have any kids. Scully, you. Yeah. Okay. No do you think, um, uh, do you think that I always thought that was an opportunity for me to write stuff that featured kids because yes. I had kids and I used my kids in various bits from, you know, sluggy to, yeah. I remember one bit I did with my son, Chris, where I discover he's yeah. hidden a Victoria's secret catalog under his mattress. And, um, <laughs> yes. but, but I'm always wanting, do you think, because the movie, the confirmation you, you feature a, a, a young boy in that movie. Yes. Um, but you, but, no, but you don't have kids yourself. So is that young boy you? <laughs> it it is a version of me, but the, he is is much harder. And actually, the, the actor Jaden Lieber who played him is much mucher than I was at that age. I, I was pretty goofy. I was a pretty goofy little kid. Uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, it, it was almost the hippie time. Uh, I consider myself a post hippie because I kind of missed that. But in a way, I was a pre hippie. I was just kind of a, a unfocused kid wandering around having fun. Uh, well, yeah, but, just like every other so, kid. Yeah. <laughs> so, especially in know. those days. But uh, yeah, so uh, a, a lot of the kids, uh, some some of the stuff of, of, of the kid in that movie did come from me. Um, if you remember the uh, troubling night uh, with the mm-hmm. father yeah. where things go bad, uh, uh, that really happened. Uh, so a few of the other things uh, were pulled from real life. So yeah, I, I did have to rely on that. Well, uh, I, I could, like I said, I could keep gabbing with you forever, but you got 
other things to do, scripts to write. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, agents to, uh, to, to, uh, to yell at and all of that. But I, yeah. it, it, it's not only been a pleasure talking to you for this period of time, but uh, it's one of the real privileges of my life to have gotten to know you, Bob. Well, and we got and we got to share an office together for crying out. Loud. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, me and uh, uh, for everyone listening, Pat suffered through my Mexican dinner leftovers for more than any man should have to endure. And you, uh, you brought in refried beans. I, I still can't believe I did this to a man who I admired so much. And, uh, it didn't bother me a I, bit, I, I but what apologize. was was that we noticed, whether it was the beans or whatever, but we noticed that there was a parade of ants <laughs> that were going into our office all the time, coming from yeah. somewhere outdoors. The ants go marching one by one, hoorah, hoorah. Uh, that we never could quite source where they were coming from. But they liked being in our office for some reason. <laughs> My guess is that you know that used to be to be Jerson and Mike James's was wasn't it? I think, oh yeah, you're, it I used think to be. Aaron, new, I think Aaron Brown and Gene Anderson yes, were in that office. Yeah, they that was their office, and uh, I think Gene Anderson was feeding them, feeding the ants. <laughs> that would be so Gene. Yeah, so that would be just like her. So, Bob, thanks, yeah. man. Well, thank you, Pat. It's. Uh, it's uh, been a real pleasure once again. Always good to hear from you. And uh, I hope I get to see you again soon. Yeah. And g- good luck with the Joe McHale story, trying to get an edge in, uh, a word in edgewise. Uh, yeah, no kidding. No kidding. That guy. That yeah. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to a lo- number of people from the show, mm-hmm. but yeah. not him. Not him. <laughs> I just oh, feel yeah. like, I, I guess I yeah. gotta, because he's yeah. a big deal na- name now and uh well, if you do decide to do a, a part two here, uh, let me know. Let's just talk about Joel, Joel and what we had to put up with. I asked, I, I uh, to Joel McHale, I mistakenly asked him one day because he was, he was kind of making fun of us. It was just the two of us in the office one morning and he was kind of mimicking some, somebody and, uh, on the staff and, uh, not you, but I said, uh, oh, okay, Joel, do me. He goes, really? He goes, yeah, I, I said I could take it. Do me. So he he gets up, he walks out of the, and he comes kind of loping back in, and he and he goes, hey, 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 Joel. And I said, you son of a bitch, you son of a bitch. God damn. Don't you ever imitate me. <laughs> hey, Joel. Thanks, Bob. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Pat. Talk to you later. The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast. Produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. Special gratitude to the legendary Kenneth George Buford McCaw, Almost Live's chief archivist. And thanks also to King TV Seattle. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman. Chris Cashman.